Hello and welcome to the September 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I hope everyone had a great summer. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up this month, a series of tweets sent out by President Donald Trump in July has set in motion a likely ban on transgender military service in the United States, with four lawsuits now filed in response. Can you tell our listeners about it, Art? Okay. Uh, this is this caught everyone by surprise, I think. On the morning of July 26th, uh, President Trump transmitted a series of three tweets beginning at 8.55 a.m., uh, he writes text that's longer than you can put in a tweet. So he writes up to the point where he's out of letters, then he does a few dots, then he picks it up. And what happened was, uh, the first part of it was, after consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow, dot, dot, dot. And he let that hang there for about nine minutes. And there were news reports that people in the Pentagon were really worried that he was about to declare war on North Korea. <laughs> but then he picked it up with transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming, dot, 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 wait a few minutes, victory, and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. Thank you. I don't know why he ends it with thank you. But that's uh, his three-part tweet which caught just about everyone by surprise. It caught the Pentagon by surprise. Uh, it seems that Secretary of Defense Mattis was on vacation at the time and only was notified the night before that the president was planning to tweet a change in transgender military policy the next morning. No details. And uh, in fact, reporters who attempted to get details from the White House staff, from the press office, from the Pentagon, no one had any idea when this was going to be implemented, what it meant. It sounded like it's immediately and people were panicking that uh, there were thousands of, uh, of people, transgender people serving in the military. Uh, the Obama administration in June 2016 had ended the existing policy of uh, excluding all transgender people. The way it worked is uh, effective July 1st, 2016, uh, transgender people serving the military could come out to their commanders, could apply to uh, be covered for sex reassignment uh, procedures and surgery under the uh, military medical coverage plan. And uh, they weren't going to lift the ban on enlisting people who identified themselves as transgender until they had time to study it further and figure out what their criteria would be. Uh, there was, I understand, some debate back and forth over whether they should insist that only people uh, who had uh, already self-identified as transgender and transitioned could be allowed to enlist or whether they would allow people to enlist knowing uh, sort of the adverse selection problem in insurance law, knowing that they sometime down the line they were going to be applying for coverage for transition. But uh, that hadn't been ironed out and Whatever would have to be changed on regulations, uniforms, housing, uh, all these things were left to be worked out. So uh, at the time, uh, Secretary uh, Carter had said 
that uh, we'll give ourselves a year to work it out. And so the goal was by July 1st, 2017, we'll open enlistment to transgender people under whatever criterion rules we've devised. But uh, Secretary Mattis had already pushed that back six months, uh, which sent up some alarm bells, but nobody thought that a complete reversion back to the old policy was in the cards. What seems to have triggered it, as it's been reconstructed now by investigative reporting, is that a, a handful of Tea Party Republicans in the House proposed an amendment to a pending defense appropriations measure that would ban the use of any of the money appropriated for the Defense Department to pay for sex reassignment uh, procedures. And to the surprise of everybody, that was defeated in the House, the proposed amendment. The Republicans have an overwhelming majority in the House, but enough Republicans crossed over to join the Democrats in opposing it that it went down. So these people unhappy let the president know that if he didn't do something about this, they were going to block the overall measure, which included the first money that was to be appropriated towards his project to build a wall with Mexico. Uh, strange project, uh, which he uh, campaigned on the idea that the Mexican government was going to pay for the wall. Why they would want to pay for a wall is beyond me and is beyond them because they keep denying that they're going to have anything to do with it. So at any rate, evidently, uh, Trump decided that the easiest way to get rid of this problem of spending money on gender transition is to just exclude transgender people from the military. And so he tweeted away and uh, left everyone to pick up the pieces. So it took the White House about a month to come up with a written memorandum to the Defense Department on uh, what they were supposed to do. And the memorandum, as it's written, has been the subject of much controversy and argument because, as usual with this White House, it's sloppy. Uh, it's ambiguous on certain points. It leaves things sort of open-ended on many fronts. And it certainly doesn't sound quite as draconian as the tweets. And the, the first response for the tweets was that all transgender people are going to be unceremoniously dumped. And then there were leaks in the intervening period until the memo came out at the end of August. And the leaks suggested that transgender people will be allowed to serve out their enlistments and then they would not be allowed to re-enlist because people don't enlist indefinitely. It's for a period of years. And as to transgender officers, that they would be able to continue serving whatever commission they had. But if they were up for promotion to a, a higher rank, that would be when they would be asked to voluntarily re retire or involuntarily retire. At any rate, that's not what emerged. In the memorandum, what the president said is uh, we are going to revert to the policy as it was in June 2016 before the changes were announced the earlier year. And he gave us his rationale that uh, the Obama administration had not done enough study and had not produced enough evidence to show that allowing transgender people to serve wouldn't have these terrible effects of, of cost and disruption and uh, unit cohesion and all the, the usual – well, I don't want to use the word on the podcast. Uh, at any rate, that was wrong because uh, the Obama administration had studied the matter extensively. They had commissioned a study from the RAND Corporation, which is sort of the uh, the blue ribbon thing you do when you, ha when you need uh, data on uh, military policy. RAND is uh, a nonpartisan 
expert organization that studies uh, issues by contract with the Defense Department and produces reports. And they went to town on this. They did a report. The report documented that lifting the ban on transgender service was not going to have any measurable adverse effects. Uh, and, uh, of course, excluding any group of people reduces the pool of available people. And they have trouble in recruiting people who meet the educational and physical requirements. It's, it's sort of shocking. But uh, when you look at the, uh, the prime target for recruiting, you discover that the proportion of the young American population that is overweight and inadequately educated to handle the present-day technological army, there's a problem recruiting. Mm -hmm. They have pro And so th there are transgender people here who have been serving uh, in whom the military has invested significant money in training and to replace them would be very expensive, especially if you uh, discharge all of them in a short period of time. You would have several thousand uh, trained people to replace, uh, and you would have shortages in certain specialties, most likely in the short term. Uh, the cost of paying for uh, sex reassignment uh, procedures was cited by the president in his tweet and is measured, mentioned again in the uh, introductory paragraphs of the memorandum. <clears throat> but the point is the RAND study said the number of people in any given year who are likely to apply for that is uh, in the range of I think between 20-something and 120-something. And uh, they said that the cost compared to the overall military health care budget is trivial. And in fact, the amount of money the military spends on Viagra far outweighs the amount that they're spending on this. And uh, we've had a year of experience now, and there's no indication that uh, the military uh, medical budget has been strained by sex reassignment. Furthermore, the way that this guidance was worded, it just says that they won't cover surgery. And a lot of the expense involved is not surgery. A lot of the expense involved is the hormone therapy and the psycho psychological counseling uh, and the follow-up procedures after the surgery. So it's hard to interpret exactly what they're excluding. But of course, if they're excluding transgender people entirely, they'll have none of these expenses. But they didn't exactly say that. What they said is that Secretary Mattis has until early February to submit a plan to the president on how they were going to implement his policy. And then it will go into effect by March 23rd of next year. And what will go into effect on March 23rd? Well, supposedly a reversion to the old policy. But presumably if Secretary Mattis comes up with a recommendation for something different from the old policy, there's a question of whether that will take place. And furthermore, the, uh, the guidance memorandum seems to leave open the possibility that Mattis could decide on a case-by-case -case basis whether it's in the interest of the military to dismiss any particular person or not. Although I will, I will note that during his confirmation hearing, a lot of the Democratic senators brought up speeches and things that he made about Obama administration, letting women in combat, things yeah. like that. So I have, I have less hope than you, you do, I think, it, it expressed in the article that he may fall on the sword for transgender troops. Well, we'll see I what happens. That he's, uh, but you're right, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Uh, the point is that there are all sorts of off-ramps in this 
guidance yeah. Yeah. if the military leadership wants to take them. Right. And uh, one member of the military leadership who immediately uh, went on record, Admiral Zukampt, who is the commandant of the Coast Guard, immediately announced that the Coast Guard would not abandon its openly transgender members. And he said he and his staff had reached out to reassure them that their jobs were safe. Uh, how he could have done that before the memo came out is uncertain. But uh, it's clear. The memo, in fact, says that no action will be taken against any serving transgender member pending the uh, Mattis recommendations. Right. And then that he said, unless Mattis advises me that, in fact, uh, these problems that have been identified are not a concern, and the RAND report would certainly support that. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Mattis has announced he's going to appoint an expert panel that's going to study the matter and make recommendations. It would be really odd if a truly expert panel that was, wasn't just stacked with right. homophobes and transphobes uh, would reach different conclusions than the RAND Corporation did. And if they reach the same conclusions, then what Mattis should be recommending to the president is that he back off from this. And... Since this was inspired entirely by politics, it seems to be it's a reaction to the threat by the Tea Party Republicans in the House to block the defense bill. By next spring, we'll have gotten beyond that, and it may be that uh, the thing will have died down and attention will have gone elsewhere, uh, and Trump will just sort of back off. That's possible. He seems to be a very changeable sort of person. Yeah, I mean, after the, all the hubbub about ending DACA, he put out another tweet saying... If Congress doesn't fix this, I'll revisit it. Yeah. <laughs> He'll revisit it, which, which seems to contradict the argument that his administration is making in court that, in fact, DACA was overreach and that President Obama didn't have the authority right. to set it up. But it seems that it was merely, it was merely sort of a uh, making more concrete certain judgments that a prosecutor would make as to where to target the enforcement of a statute. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have enough resources to go after everyone who's in the country without documentation, you may want to prioritize uh, given the way the system is backed up. Uh, one of my colleagues here who is an expert in immigration law says it, it takes five years to deport somebody just because how backed up the bureaucracy is and everyone who possibly could do it demands a hearing and then they, they want to appeal. And so uh, you read about cases decided by the Court of Appeals uh, sort of the final step and you look at the dates and you discover that a case has been around for years and years and yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. So who knows how long it will take for them to deport all these kids. Yeah. And many of them are not kids as, right. as Obama, uh, as, as Trump has were indicated. Broad as kids. They were broad. They were all brought as kids. Yeah. That's the definition. Yeah. They had to be coming as minors. Right. Uh, but many of them are now adults because this policy goes back a while. Uh, so where are we on the transgender thing? We have four lawsuits. Yes. All right. Uh, based just on the tweets and the rumors that were coming out of the White House, uh, NCLR and GLAD collaborated on a lawsuit, which they filed in the district court in D.C., which has already been uh, – received a motion for preliminary injunction, has been put on file, and has been – the uh, complaint has been amended once to add more plaintiffs to make sure that they have all the standing points. And some great covered. affidavits from uh, great affidavits you know, from Obama era past uh, leaders, uh, leaders, you know, secretaries and assistant secretaries and everything, all saying that this was studied uh, 
more than adequately, and and it was documented that it was a good idea to lift the ban, yeah. and there was no problem anticipated. So we got that lawsuit. Uh, Lambda Legal subsequently filed a lawsuit after the memorandum was issued. The ACLU filed a lawsuit. Equality California filed a lawsuit. So we now have lawsuits pending in four different federal district courts. Uh, they all make due process and equal protection arguments based on the Fifth Amendment. Uh, three of them make First Amendment arguments uh, on the theory that uh, what happened with the uh, policy adopted a year ago, people were encouraged to come out. And so having come out, you know, now they're going to be punished for their speech uh, is a theory there. I'm, I'm a little uncertain about how that's going to work. Uh, but also the first lawsuit that was filed uh, by uh, NCLR and GLAD had an estoppel argument. And that, I think, is calculated to appeal to the sense of fairness of the courts. The idea that uh, the people who are currently serving and who came out and identified themselves as transgender, uh, the military assured them at the time when the policy was adopted that it was safe to come out and encouraged them to come out. And so if they are among the first who are going to be targeted for discharge, uh, there's a real good estoppel argument to be made. There's an equitable estoppel argument that, in fact, it was misrepresented to them that they could come out without endangering their jobs. And we have some precedent for this. There was this famous case that was litigated back in the uh, 1980s and early 90s, Perry Watkins, who was uh, a sergeant in the Army. He was uh, considered one, uh, a fantastic fantastic uh, person on running military stores and inventory and all kinds of stuff. His commanders like extolled him to the skies. But he was also well known as one of the most entertaining drag entertainers in military shows. Uh, and he came up for reenlistment several times. And even though the law was that gay people may not serve, his commanders looked the other way and they let him keep enlisting because he loved the army. He had a captive audience for his drag shows. <laughs> and they liked his work, uh, you know, his day job. So he was praised and promoted right along. And then finally, uh, when the Reagan administration came in and the new regulations that you have to dismiss people, you can't exercise discretion to keep them, they didn't allow him to reenlist. And so he sued. And the Ninth Circuit ultimately held under an estoppel theory. They couldn't refuse to let him reenlist. They What they did was they, they negotiated a settlement. Uh, so he never did come back. But the estoppel theory carried a lot of weight there. I, this, I just saw the uh, movie version of the London production of Angels in America. Yes. And the play brings up one of the cases that also relied on a estoppel argument because the, they're, they're, he's yelling at the other character yeah. for not for overturning the district court saying that uh, there was a you know flat out constitutional problem yeah. with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but uh, or the predecessor to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I guess to be the right. timeline in the play. Um, so I think you're right. There were a couple. Uh, I think they were. I think they were borrowing, borrowing. the Perry Watkins thing and just shifting it to the Second, Second Circuit because okay. that's where this character Joe Pitt was clerking Correct. for the judge. But at any rate, and, and by the way, that production uh, for any of you who didn't notice it in the in the newspapers this week is coming to the U.S. Yes, although they have to pick a new uh, a new Joe Pitt. Joe Pitt so we're not going to get Russell to Tovey. Yeah. Uh, All right, so the transgender thing, where is, it, where is it? I think my bottom line on this is I think with four lawsuits pending, the chances of getting a preliminary injunction are pretty good, yeah. which means that this may never go into effect at all. 
And let me just be uh, the negative person on the podcast again and say one thing that I don't think has been talked about enough the last couple of weeks is that uh, a lot of the don't ask, don't tell litigation was not successful. Most of it was unsuccessful. Until the very end, that log cabin Republicans case in California where we right. got a nationwide injunction uh, from a district court. Um, so I, I do have some... I'm worried that they're going to rely on the, you know, deference to the military stuff that, well, that seemed to... The, my argument against that is the, the deference to the military stuff was always based on the idea that the ban on service by gay people was generated from within the military. It wasn't dictated by the political branches. Uh, it wasn't... Uh, obviously, in, when Clinton tried to end it, Congress came in and passed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But originally... This came from the military, and when Congress passed Don't Ask, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, there were hearings in which all the military leaders came in and said, oh, we need this policy, we need to keep gay people out, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, I think any claim that reinstating the ban on uh, transgender people is an exercise of military professional judgment is obviously spurious because this is a case of Trump spontaneously doing it for political reasons. And discriminating against a defined class of citizens for political reasons doesn't even pass the rational basis test when you come to asking for an objective uh, justification for a discriminatory policy. So I think I think deference to the military doesn't enter into it in these lawsuits. I think uh, a court's going to say, well, there's no possibility that Donald Trump is exercising professional military judgment. He said in his first tweet after consulting with my generals and experts, but he has never once since then named any expert who he consulted or any general that he consulted for that matter. And uh, the generals, uh, the, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the uh, uh, senior military people in each of the military branches, the secretary, none of them has come out and said, we need this. We need to exclude transgender people. So it's clearly a political decision and no deference to uh, military professional expertise is involved. I hope you're right. I hope they see it that way. <laughs> I would. Uh, yes. Uh, all right. We will take a short break. And when we return, we'll discuss what is shaping up to be a blockbuster U.S. Supreme Court term. We are back. A uh, huge First Amendment case is already accepted, and a big brief was filed in that uh, case this week that we'll talk about. Uh, and petitions for certiorari have been filed in two other cases involving Title IX and Title VII. Can you lay out the state of play, Art? Okay. Well, when the Supreme Court comes back uh, at the end of September to uh, hold their pre-term cert conferences to decide what to do, they are confronting actually three cert petitions uh, in addition to the one that they've already granted. All right, So they granted a petition uh, from a uh, baker in Colorado who was found by the uh, Civil Rights Commission there and by the Court of Appeals of the state to have violated the public accommodations law by refusing to make a custom wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Uh, this happened at a time when they didn't have same-sex marriage in Colorado, 
But they did in some other states, and this couple was planning to go out of state and get married and then have a ceremony for family and friends back home. And what they wanted a wedding cake for their ceremony. And they were turned down. The guy said, I don't do same-sex marriages. It's against my religion. Uh, and the way the case was presented to the Supreme Court on the petition for cert and uh, the uh, alliance defending freedom, uh, our favorite favorite in quotes, anti-gay public interest law firm uh, is behind this case and several of the others uh, in this area. Uh, they're saying he's a cake artist. They're trying to de-emphasize the religious aspect and say that custom baking is a matter of artistic expression under the First, America, uh, First Amendment's free speech clause. And they throw in the freedom of religion thing, but it's almost a throwaway in this case. They really try to focus on the speech because focusing on the religion doesn't get them very far because of Employment Division versus Smith which was uh, a, a ruling by the Supreme Court that there is no general religious exemption to complying with neutral state laws under the First Amendment. Uh, but that's a religious exemption. Now, I'll talk about speech, and that raises different issues. So uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, has been granted, but the last briefs haven't been filed yet, and the court doesn't announce the date for oral arguments until all the briefs are in. So uh, this past week we had a, an amicus brief filed by the Solicitor General on behalf of the Justice Department and the Trump administration in favor of the baker, uh, really pushing the free speech hard and trying to make uh, an argument that this is sort of a narrowly tailored exception for goods or services that have a specific expressive component to them, where uh, Mr. The, the baker here can claim that he is being compelled to speak a message he doesn't want to speak by being required to sit down with these guys and plan their wedding cake uh, that will be specifically designed to be a part of their celebration and make him a part of their wedding. Uh, and the brief that the Solicitor General filed suggested that, well, a wedding photographer might be able to make this kind of argument and uh, maybe a florist they said, but it would depend on the nature of the goods or services they're providing. They have to be like custom-made, and they have to have expressive content that indicates a celebratory or approving of the same-sex marriage. And they don't have to have a religious objection. All they have to do is say, I do not want to speak this message. Uh, and I am I'm a bit concerned, uh, and uh, I didn't really express this in my article, because this amicus brief wasn't filed until after the article uh, was finished, but I am very concerned that uh, this is an argument that might capture Justice Kennedy, and you need five votes and you need Kennedy. Uh, we don't win any case in the Supreme Court without Kennedy uh, because he's the swing vote on gay issues. So I'm a little concerned about this argument because we lost him on the Boy Scouts case, and they really rely on the Boy Scouts case here. And we lost him in the Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade case, although we lost the entire court there. But still, we've never gotten Kennedy on one of these controversies. The closest we come to that actually is the Christian Legal Society case. And there, 
they came up with an interpretation of what was going on that sort of elided this issue. And he also wrote a concurrence where he sort of talked about how in law school you should be exposed to a diversity of ideas. Right. It's a hard to extend that right. logic to this. Situation. And also, th that wasn't a case where you were uh, compelling the Christian Legal Society to speak. You were just compelling them not to exclude someone from being a member. But you weren't compelling them to speak a pro-gay rights uh, uh, position. But on the other hand, when you look at Dale and the argument of the Boy Scouts in that case was requiring us to have an openly gay man as an assistant scoutmaster is asking us to speak a pro-gay message. And the Supreme Court nodded yes. And Justice Rehnquist said, yeah, it's compelling you to – so what are we going to do here? Uh, this case is a puzzler. In fact, a colleague of mine who uh, is a constitutional law teacher uh, – says that the listserv maintained by the American uh, by the uh, Association of American Law Schools for con law teachers has been burning up with debates about this case for the past few weeks and very hotly argued on both sides by con law professors as to whether this is a case where the uh, protection for freedom of speech or for free exercise of religion will be held by the court to override the interests of the state in banning discrimination. Very, very complex. Although, of course, a lot of uh, commentators uh, have pointed out uh, the past couple of days that there's no limiting principle in the Solicitor General's brief. I mean, well, where I does think this... there is. They're, they're, they're claiming that the limiting principle is – It only applies to this to gay people, which is a no, terrifying limiting no, principle. No, that's the, the limiting principle, and it wouldn't just only apply to gay people. It would apply to any situation where under a public accommodations law, you're forcing a business to make – a political statement or to take a position that's political. What about an interracial wedding? Well, that's Wouldn't that a good, be a political That statement? would be a great hypo to put to the justices and see what they do. Well, I hope that's what they're thinking about. Yeah. I, I guess I I disagree with you that there's a limiting principle. I well, think they're trying to construct a can one. of worms. They're right? trying to construct one. Obviously, it opens up a can of worms to make any kind of exception right. to a non-discrimination, but the Supreme Court has proven willing to make exceptions. They invented the ministerial exception, for example. Right. Uh, so uh, there's that case, and if that were the only case the Supreme Court decides this term on gay issues, it would be a big term in terms of gay issues. But now we have uh, these other cases knocking on the door. We have a petition filed during the summer from Arlene's Flowers in the state of Washington, very similar to the Masterpiece Cake Shop, except this time it's floral arrangements instead of cakes. Uh, and so uh, – and it's ADF, of course, uh, writing that petition. But the other two uh, asked the court to take up Title IX. Does Title IX apply to uh, gender identity discrimination claims against schools? And in the specific context of the restroom issue, frequently argued and litigated these days. And Title VII, uh, does Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 64, which bans sex discrimination, does that apply uh, to sexual orientation discrimination claims and under what circumstances? So uh, the Title uh, Nine cases from the Kenosha School District in Wisconsin, uh, Ash Whitaker, transgender boy, wants to use the boys' room. The school says, no way. We only let people with a penis in the boys' room. Well, they didn't put it that crudely, but that's basically their argument. Uh, you should use the girls' room. But just a minute. I'm dressing like a boy. I'm looking like a boy. The girls don't want me in there. What do I do? Well, we've got this uh, single-sex bathroom in the nurse's office you can go to. You know, it's that kind of thing. And uh, he says, well, look, I'm a boy now. I want to be treated like a boy, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so we have this confrontation going on all over the place. 
so this case, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of Mr. Whitaker against the Kenosha School District, and the school district has petitioned the Supreme Court for review. And they point out that this is an issue that's being litigated all over the country. School districts need to know what their obligations are here. And the Fourth Circuit took an initial stab at it in the Gavin Grimm case, uh, which we talked about last year, where the Supreme Court actually granted review. But in that case, the Fourth Circuit was relying on the Obama administration having issued a, uh, a letter to the court in that case signifying their agreement with uh, the plaintiff's interpretation of Title IX regulations, that it, it required the school to let the transgender boy use the boys' room. Uh, and the Fourth Circuit said that the district court should defer to that. So it reversed the district court's dismissal of the Title IX claim, sent the case back, the district court issued a preliminary injunction, the Supreme Court stayed the injunction, then granted a cert petition, then scheduled an argument to take place in the spring, then Trump got inaugurated, and uh, after he got his uh, secretaries of education and attorney general installed, they issued a joint letter withdrawing the Obama administration interpretation. Therefore, the executive branch interpretation or administrative interpretation that was supposed to get deference disappeared, so the Supreme Court acceded to the Trump administration's request to cancel the argument. They vacated the Fourth Circuit's decision. They sent it back. The Fourth Circuit sent it back to the district court to decide whether the case is moot because while all this was happening, Gavin Grimm graduated. He claimed that as an alumnus of the school, he was likely to go back for alumni events and things like that. So restroom access for him remained an issue. The school district disagreed and moved to dismiss the case. Uh, and it's, it's sort of interesting because the ACLU representing Grimm said, why are we going to litigate it on this ground? I mean, the preliminary injunction is gone. He's not a student anymore. Let's reboot the case as an alumnus suing. And so they got an agreement with the uh, school district to withdraw the appeal from the denial of the preliminary injunction, which is where it stood at the moment. Uh, and they filed an amended complaint uh, earlier in August uh, asking the court to sort of refocus on the question whether – in general, the policy violated Title IX. So we get back to first principles there, but while that case is pending, this other case is knocking on the door. And I think by granting cert in the first case, the Supreme Court certainly was expressing interest in taking up this issue. So I think it is possible that this case will make it through and will be accepted. And if uh, the I think there's easily four votes yeah, that the, would want to overturn the Seventh Circuit decision. Yeah, probably. You know. I hope there's not five votes that want to return it. But, it, but you know, the, it, this would depend on what they think Justice Kennedy might do in this case. Yeah. And so if uh, they grant cert in this one and uh, we have contradicting fi contradictory filings uh, in terms of government amicus briefs here because we've got states on both sides and we've got school districts on both sides and we've got the EEOC – supporting uh, Ash Whitaker, and we have the Justice Department, Solicitor General, supporting the Kenosha School District. So uh, I think it is highly likely, and when the Solicitor General urges the court to take a case in order to reverse the lower court, that's a thumb on the scale. They're considered the 10th justice, right? Yeah, that's a thumb on the scale. So I think it's likely it'll be granted. 
uh, if it's granted uh, right at the beginning of the term, uh, then it might end up getting heard like February or March, and we'll have a decision by the end of the year. Uh, and then Lambda Legal, just before we went to press, really, filed a cert petition in Evans against Georgia Regional Hospital, a case out of the 11th Circuit, uh, presenting the much-litigated question of whether Title VII covers sexual orientation discrimination. And uh, Title VII, of course, adopted in 1964. As the uh, bill was before the House of Representatives, sex was not listed as a forbidden ground for discrimination in any part of, of the bill. Uh, and a, an amendment was made on the floor to add sex to Title VII, which is the employment title, not to the other titles, public accommodations, other things. Sex was not added to those. So sex is in Title VII. No one knew what it meant. The assumption was that it meant that you can't discriminate against men because they're men against women because they're women. That simply, that's what it was. But over the decades since then, the Supreme Court has read so much into this sex discrimination ban, including the sexual stereotyping case, uh, including cases about pregnancy and childbirth where the court got it wrong and Congress overruled them. Uh, it's been a back-and-forth tussle over the scope and breadth of the sex discrimination ban. And what we've had happening over the past few decades is federal courts, district courts, have started in some districts to accept the argument that sexual orientation claims were covered. In fact, gender identity claims got covered earlier than sexual orientation claims using the stereotyping theory. But uh, we finally had a breakthrough in the Seventh Circuit this spring. And the Seventh Circuit ruled on bank uh, that sexual orientation claims could be brought under Title VII but they ruled in a case where the employer was willing to accept that, that they lost on that point and go back to litigate the case because the employer stoutly maintains that it did not discriminate based on sexual orientation and it even had a policy against such discrimination. Uh, so the employer did not file a cert petition. But then we have this case that was pending in the 11th Circuit, and the 11th Circuit uh, not only ruled against the plaintiff on the sexual orientation claim, saying sexual orientation discrimination could not be litigated under Title VII, they denied on bank review, even though it would have been appropriate because the panel was relying on a case from the old Fifth Circuit. There wasn't even an Eleventh Circuit precedent they were relying on. So it would have made sense for the Eleventh Circuit to take this up on bank. But they didn't. And so Lambda has, has petitioned the Supreme Court to take it up. I think this is a slightly longer shot, but the fact that there is a circuit split, Seventh Circuit has gone one way, Eleventh Circuit has gone the other, there's an on-bank argument pending oh, in the I Second mean, Circuit. Just about every other circuit at one point has gone the other way. Right. So the, the split is between seven and everyone else, yeah. but within a few months it may between, be between seven and two and everyone else, right. because the Second Circuit is hearing the Zarda case on September 26th, yeah. and uh, they may move quickly, which they have sometimes in the past. Uh, in fact, I would I would be interested in watching. It's sort of a horse race here. What's going to happen first? Is the Supreme Court going to rule on the Evans petition, or is the Second Circuit going to rule on Zarda? Because if the Second Circuit rules on the Zarda case, reverses the lower court, and says sexual orientation is covered under Title VII, that widens the circuit split. If you add the states of the Second Circuit to the states of the Seventh Circuit, then there's an even bigger portion of the country, especially by population, that where sexual orientation claims can be brought under Title VII. And sort of forecasting 
what they think the outcome is going to be in the Second Circuit. We've had a little trickle of district judges within the Second Circuit refusing to dismiss sexual orientation claims under Title VII because they see what, the way the wind is blowing. Uh, so it seems likely uh, the Second Circuit is actually a much more democratic circuit in terms of the uh, presidents who appointed the judges than the Seventh Circuit, which was a heavily Republican circuit. Uh, we should also mention that one of the great champions of gay rights in the Seventh Circuit, uh, Richard Posner, last week announced his retirement suddenly and out of the blue and immediate to take effect immediately. Yeah. Uh, so he no. wrote he wrote their marriage equality decision and he wrote a concurring opinion in this Kenosha case. Well, no, in the Hively case. Oh, in the Hively yeah. case, right? And I'll I'll mention too, and I read in an article about. Judge Posner's retirement, the author of the Kenosha case, Ann Claire Williams, has also, she's now in senior status she's as of June, retire. and she's planning to fully retire this year. So oh. we're losing two champions on the seventh. Which is bad because judges on senior status don't. To participate in on banks Correct. unless they were on the three-judge panel. Right. Well, interesting situation. On, uh, what, what, what could happen in the Supreme Court this year if all these cert petitions get granted? We could have three major LGBT rights cases in one term in the Supreme Court. And, We've never had that before. And two other things uh, that are possibilities uh, are the Fifth Circuit Mississippi law case. Right. If that doesn't get taken on bonk, do they go to the Supreme Court? They might try. And yeah. uh, the thing we already talked about, the trans military ban. If someone right. gets a preliminary injunction, is that going to be appealed Quickly, That's all the way possible. Up. This could be this could be LGBT year yes. at the Supreme Court, and <laughs> you know, I I think everyone is going to be saying Justice Kennedy, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, hang on there, hang yes. in there, complete the term, please, because and if stay uh, two more years after this term, if President Trump gets to nominate anyone to replace one of those people, just to just to show that I, I just saw an article about his district court appointments for Texas. And he has appointed to uh, or has nominated for federal district judges two people who are among the most outspoken anti-gay people you could possibly imagine. They've worked for some organization that specializes in opposing gay rights and getting people to do referenda to repeal gay rights laws and things like that. So putting them on the district court bench in Texas, uh, let Texas secede from the union. Um. Oh, my God. All right. We will take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a fascinating custody dispute that has emerged out of the Hasidic community in Brooklyn. We are back. A panel of the New York Appellate Division in Brooklyn has unanimously reversed a trial judge's decision to take away a formerly Hasidic lesbian mother's custody of her three children, finding, among other things, that the settlement agreement drafted by her ex-husband's father at the time of their divorce imposed an unconstitutional requirement that she continue to observe the tenets of a Hasidic lifestyle as a condition of her custody of their children. Quite a clash of cultures in this case, isn't there, Art? Definitely. Uh, <laughs> this is well. This is a very unusual sort of case uh, to do even be in the courts because usually disputes in that community are settled internally right. through a, a rabbinical court. But in this case, uh, we have Naftali and Chava Weisberger, who were married in 2002. They were brought together by a matchmaker employed by their families, uh, as was customary in that community. Uh, they moved to Brooklyn after getting married, and at the time they were married, they were both 19 years old. 
uh, he was going to be going to school and then into business. And they had three children. And she told him after several years of marriage that she, quote, did not enjoy sexual relations with men and she was attracted to women. But he wasn't about to break up his home. So they lived together for several years until he finally agreed to give her a religious divorce. In, in Orthodox Judaism, the husband has to give permission in the form of a document called the get to the woman to divorce. Mm. And then they go before a rabbinic court, and the rabbinic court has to approve whatever the terms are that they've worked out. Uh, in this case, uh, she was uh, counseled by a rabbi, and uh, she was she thought that she had certain terms that she wanted is to be in part of the settlement uh, because a, a settlement agreement had been drafted by his father who was a rabbi and uh, she wanted some changes made and she was told they'd be made she shows up at the rabbinic court called the Bet Dean and none of the changes have been made and the real sticking point in this case because uh, this is all in the context of their divorce is the religious upbringing clause in the settlement agreement which said, parties agree to give the children a Hasidic upbringing in all details, in home or outside of home, compatible with that of their families. Fathers shall decide which school the children attend, mother to ensure that the children arrive in school in a timely manner and have all their needs provided. But it also said that each party shall be free from interference, authority, and control, direct or indirect, by the other. Uh, as part of the terms of the divorce, Chava agreed to waive any claim to marital assets or to further financial support for herself, but under the agreement, Naftali was to pay $600 a month for support of the children. All right. Promptly after the divorce was made final, Naftali remarried to someone else and had more children established a new home. Uh, during the first 18 months of his new marriage, he did not exercise his full visitation rights with the children. Under the settlement, he was to get them for two hours, one night a week, plus uh, Friday late afternoon to uh, Saturday evening for the Sabbath, and also two weeks in the summer. And he was not exercising his full rights, and furthermore, or at least she claimed uh, in the subsequent litigation, that he never paid the $600 a month. And that when he exercised his visitation rights, he didn't have the children in his home. He had them in his parents' home or with other relatives, but not in his in the home where he lived. Uh, presumably, he didn't want them to be there with his new wife and, and his kids of his new marriage. Uh, and things were going along for a while, but I guess once after that initial 18-month period passed and... Uh, Naftali was doing more of the visitation. He got more informed about what was going on in Hava's home with the kids, and it seems that she had fallen away from the Hasidic lifestyle. Uh, she was dressing in a more modern way. Uh, she was calling the kids by English names instead of the Yiddish names. Uh, she was not being strict about following kosher uh, food requirements and about how the kids were going to dress. And... Uh, I guess it was sort of the, the cap on it all is she had a transgender man move in with her. And when uh, Naftali heard about this, he filed a petition with the court to give him sole custody 
I mean, the original arrangement was that they had joint custody and that the kids would live most of the time with Hava. But now he wanted sole custody. The kids would live with him. She would have very limited visitation rights, a few hours a week under supervision. She wouldn't be alone with the children unless she agreed to observe all the terms of the religious upbringing clause, which as he interpreted it was that the children are not to be exposed to your lifestyle, your lesbian lifestyle. When you're with them, you're a Hasidic woman, you dress as a Hasidic woman, you behave as a Hasidic woman, you only allow them to eat kosher food, you only allow them to dress in Hasidic style, etc., etc. She responded to this by filing a motion to have the, uh, well, of course, to reject his uh, demand for full custody, but importantly, she wanted to change the religious upbringing clause to allow for the possibility that these kids could go to a modern Orthodox school which would tolerate uh, gay parents and so forth. And, of course, he was fiercely opposed to that. In one deposition, he was asked, uh, is there any kind of compromise? And he said, there's no place for compromising in our religion. So the trial judge was faced with this rather bitter dispute. And the trial judge, who I've heard is an Orthodox Jew but not a member of the Hasidic community, decided to give controlling weight to that settlement agreement. He said that, you know, given the testimony we have here about what's happened, if you applied the normal principles of uh, custody and visitation law, you would not give it to the father. I mean, he didn't exercise his rights. He didn't pay his support payments, etc. Why should he now get sole custody? And uh, he said, but this agreement, he said, very clear directives. The court is obligated to consider the religious upbringing of the children as a paramount factor in any custody determination. And so he agreed that the father should get sole custody, the father should have residential custody, the mother's visitation should be sharply restricted to supervised visitation a few hours a week unless she was willing to abide by the religious upbringing clause which the judge refused to modify. Right, so this gets appealed, and the appellate division pretty unanimously rejected what the trial judge had done. Uh, they didn't reject everything he did, but almost everything he did. They said uh, there's no basis for removing any custody from the, from the mother, and uh, there's no indication that the mother is harming the children. Uh, the mother, in fact, has been the main parent in their lives, for all of their lives. Even when they were married, the father was away all day, uh, and didn't see the kids much during the week at all, uh, and didn't seem to have much to do with them until it came to a divorce. And uh, the court doesn't say it, but one suspects that the father's family put a lot of pressure. Uh, his father, after all, drafted the settlement agreement. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the appellate division says uh, it's up to each parent to interpret the religious upbringing clause basically when the children are in their custody as comports with their religious views. They said, you know, there's a, a First Amendment, freedom of religion, and due process, and they even cited Lawrence versus Texas for the point that people have autonomy and the government can't come in and say, you cannot uh, have custody or visitation with your children unless you act in a certain way prescribed by religion. It's up to you to decide what your religious right. observance is. Uh, it would be unconstitutional, an unconstitutional condition to say that she can't have the kids for unsupervised visitation unless she promises 
to dress and act as a Hasidic woman. Uh, they noted that she, she promises she will keep a kosher home. She promises, uh, you know, now that they've denied any change in the religious upbringing clause, she promises that she'll get the kids to school, they'll be dressed properly, etc. The father, the one thing that they did uphold is the father will still have, as provided in the settlement agreement, a sole authority to decide where they go to school. So they're still going to go to a Hasidic school. But uh, in many respects, the court basically said to these people, you guys have got to work this out. You've got to work out an accommodation somehow uh, because we're not going to require as a condition of her continuing to have joint custody and, and primary residential custody, we're not going to impose a condition that she lead a Hasidic lifestyle. That's up to her. And they said, besides, the settlement agreement is about the religious lifestyle of the children. It doesn't require her to lead a particular religious lifestyle. And the husband was very upset that the wife had actually come out as a lesbian to the oldest, older daughter. But she did that in response to the older daughter, she said, starting to ask questions about the nature of her life. And she had counsel, professional counseling, and the counselor said, well, you know, she's old enough now. She's a teenager now. You can talk to her about these things. Well, the father's view was she was supposed to keep this a deep, dark secret as long as the children were in her custody. And this business with the transgender man in the household, that was like blowing her cover. Uh, so how they're going to negotiate this out is difficult for me to conceive, especially when the father's position is that in his religion, there is no compromise. The court says, well, they've got to work it out in the best interest of the children because we are not controlled by a settlement agreement. We are controlled by the law, which says the best interest of the children is what we're supposed to decide in a custody dispute. And forcing the, the mother to keep her sexual orientation a deep, dark secret is no. uh, That's not, not, it's right. not in the best interest of the kids. It's not in the best interest of the kids to have their mother keeping the secret. Uh, and so this has started to arouse some comment in the Hasidic community. I've seen a few things online posted. Uh, whether it will be appealed to the Court of Appeals would be a very interesting question now that we have our first openly gay member of the Court of Appeals. Uh, who uh, they, they put out a very interesting decision uh, the first week of September on assisted suicide. Uh -huh. But uh, Judge Feynman did not participate because that one was argued before he took the bench. Yeah. Um, yeah, it will be very, you know, it's such a complicated uh, emotional case, I think, that it's uh, hard to predict what the Court of Appeals might do with it. Definitely. It's hard, hard to predict. And uh, certainly from principles of family law and then principles of constitutional law, uh, you would have to say that the appellate division was trying to strike a balance that would respect both sides. But in doing so, they may have set up a situation that will be extremely difficult for the parties to negotiate. All right, we will take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss Australia's nationwide, but non-binding, uh, vote to gauge public support for marriage equality. We are back to wrap up with the Of Note segment for this episode. Australia's High Court ruled on Thursday of this week that a national postal vote, or what they call a plebiscite, on same-sex marriage will go ahead. Ballot papers will now be mailed out to households across Australia, beginning the two-month process. 
How did we get here, Art? Well, you know, it's interesting. We have uh, we we have benefited from the expertise of David Buchanan, a senior barrister in uh, practicing in Sydney, Australia, who's written our article on this for the uh, September issue of Law Notes. And there is a major development since the article was written, uh, which isn't reflected in the published newsletter, and that is that the Supreme Court of Australia has rejected a challenge to the holding of this mail vote. And perhaps in a somewhat confusing uh, posture, the folks that are in favor of marriage equality do not want this to happen. Right. They don't want the vote because they don't want the campaign. Right. And we've already had a foretaste of what the campaign is going to be like. And we saw some of this in America. In fact, the playbook that's being followed is the Prop 8 playbook. It's uh, television commercials and online ads that uh, raise all kinds of scare stuff about your children in school are going to be taught about same-sex marriage and homosexuality and all this kind of stuff. So stick your heads in the sand and vote no. Uh, So the way this came about uh, is that there was an attempt uh, several years ago to try to litigate for marriage equality in the High Court of Australia, the nation's Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that uh, the, the states, some of which wanted to have same-sex marriage, especially the capital district, the states do not have power over this, that marriage has to be legislated on a national basis by the parliament. And the parliament could authorize same-sex marriage without violating the Constitution, but they didn't have to. It was a political judgment. It was up to them. So that threw it back to the parliament. And... The Australian Parliament uh, is even more divided than the U.S. Congress because there are three major parties, actually several minor parties. It's not a two-party system. And so there is no clear-cut one party is in total control unless they really sweep the boards in an election, which is very unusual. There's usually a coalition of some sort. And the current government is a coalition government, and the coalition itself has a very narrow margin. Over the the coalition is the uh, Liberal Party, which is actually a conservative party, and the National Party, which is a nationalist sort of populist party, uh, and that's the ruling coalition. They have a slight, I think, a one vote margin in the lower house of the parliament over the Labour Party and the Greens and the Socialists, who have a, a little representation. But the Labour Party is the largest of the uh, minority parties. Uh, And the Labor Party have been dithering about this issue, but they finally decided they're in favor of marriage equality because the national party's against it. (laughs) And uh, so at any rate, uh, the Liberal National Party Coalition would founder if Parliament was given a free vote on marriage equality. If there was a free vote on marriage equality, there are enough members of the Liberal the Greens, the Socialists, and the Labor Party for it to carry in the lower house. And the Senate is not a problem. They would go along with it. Uh, But the problem is, because they know that, the National Party has made it very clear, and so have the more conservative elements of the Liberal Party, that the coalition will fall apart if the Prime Minister allows this to come up for a free vote. So this Prime Minister and his predecessor have both, both took the position, and his predecessor was opposed to marriage equality, Tony Abbott, and the current uh, Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, is on record as being in favor of marriage equality. But in order to keep this coalition together, they have agreed that first there has to be a national plebiscite. And under an official national plebiscite, every registered voter must vote or pay a fine. 
So they get extraordinarily high turnouts on, on those circumstances. But the Senate has refused to go along with approving a plebiscite. So uh, repeatedly, the Senate has rejected it. So uh, Turnbull turned to another government agency, not the Election Commission. The Electoral Commission would normally administer a national plebiscite, which people vote in person. Uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, it seems, has the authority and the funding to do public national opinion polls. I mean, their main job is really it's, – it's the Australian Bureau of Statistics is doing surveys to collect statistics that are needed for the government to make policy decisions. But uh, – so what uh, the prime minister wants to do is to authorize the Australian Bureau of Statistics to conduct a national mail survey. Surveys will be mailed out to every household and people are supposed to mail them in. But because it's not an official plebiscite, there's no mandatory voting. So it's whoever feels like responding. It's like an American election. You don't have to show up and there's no consequence except for the fact that you may get a candidate elected who you don't like and you didn't take the time to How vote against How could that ever it. happen? How could that? That never happens. So, uh, so the Australian Bureau of Statistics is supposed to do this. And the Australian Bureau of Statistics does not have a great track record, evidently, as administering national surveys. And on top of that, it's obviously not going to be statistically significant unless an overwhelming proportion of the public votes. And furthermore, it's not binding on anybody. Right. Parliament's still going to have to vote even if uh, well, marriage equality wins. Maybe or not. But the, well, if marriage equality wins, uh, Turnbull has committed himself. He will allow a vote in Parliament if the survey shows majority support for marriage equality. Uh, if marriage equality loses, he will not bring it, but there could be private member bills introduced. We'll see. But uh, the country is now going to be torn apart uh, if first signs are anything by a vicious media campaign uh, waged by uh, opponents of marriage equality and by a very hotly argued and raucous campaign by the pro-marriage equality people. I mean, people are going to pour lots of money into this. It's going to occupy the national debate for a period of a few months until the survey is completed. Uh, the biggest job for the uh, marriage equality people is to get everyone who supports marriage equality to vote. Because, I mean, now that this is because the people who are they the, at least want to win, yeah, it, you the know? people who are opposed, they are really they're riled up and fired up right. to oppose it. They're going to vote. So getting the pro people and the most strongly pro marriage equality people are the younger people who yep. tend not to vote. Right. Unless, in fact, many of them weren't registered because if you register to vote, then you have to vote when they have an official vote. So a lot of people don't bother to register. Uh, so you got to get them registered so they can be on the, on the roster to get the uh, and and what's going to be mailed out. It's going to be mailed out. It's like a single sentence. Should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry? Yes or no? That's it. Why do you need to do it by mail? Why not do it online? You know. But uh, so this is playing out in Australia, and it's really sort of bizarre because all the other major English-speaking countries now have same-sex marriage. You know, the really big ones. And uh, maybe by population, Australia isn't as big, but it's a, it's, it's uh, virtually a, a continent on its own, and yeah. it's considered a major. A country within the British Commonwealth. Uh, the other most significant outlier is Northern Ireland at this point. And uh, the uh, Supreme Court there, in fact, within the past few weeks, the uh, 
the Supreme Court there rejected uh, what you call the, the argument. The far-right party of Northern Ireland is now part of the governing coalition of the United Kingdom. Yeah, as a result of the disastrous uh, election, parliamentary yes. election. Disastrous for the conservatives. Right. Yes. So uh, interesting things going on around the world. Yes. And, and meanwhile, various little British possessions and territories and things have been falling into line, and we get marriage here and, and you know this little island and that little island. Right. So little by little, the British Commonwealth is lining up, and uh, sort of a parting shot that we really should mention, that a nine-judge panel of the Supreme Court of India has now ruled that there is a constitutional right of privacy, and several of the judges joined in an opinion that sharply criticized the two-judge panel ruling on the sodomy law in India in such expansive terms that a pending reconsideration of that case before a five-judge panel is now being widely considered a foregone conclusion. And India is the second largest country in the world by population and is the largest country that still has a criminal sodomy law because China doesn't. People are sometimes surprised to hear that. As our president would say, who knew China doesn't have a sodomy law? <laughs> but they don't. They have other laws and they oppress gay people in other ways. But they, it's not a crime in China to have gay sex between consenting adults and private but in India, it is, and, and we're hopeful that will be overturned. But the language is so broad that the next step in India will be to push for marriage equality because they basically said that sexual orientation as such is a protected characteristic under the Indian constitution. Uh, so, you know, run with that. We'll see where, what happens. India might be coming online. And that would be, of course, the largest by population former British colony to fall in line on this. It would be very interesting to see. All right. A lot to uh, ponder from today's podcast, for sure. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a, a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in October.